This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee on day eight of the 60-day legislative session. There's been a big change in vaccination policy. Starting next week, the governor says the age limit will drop from 65 to 60, which means two million more Floridians will be eligible for shots. Next Monday, we will be lowering the age in the state of Florida to 60 plus for, for vaccinations. And that will apply uh, across the board at all of the state pods, all of the pharmacies, uh, all of the different drive through sites. But Democrats have stepped up their attacks on the governor for his vaccination plan or, from their point of view, the lack thereof. The vaccine rollout under Governor DeSantis has been marked by favoritism, frustration and confusion. We needed clear, transparent communication. And yet what we've got was the complete opposite. The least transparent administration of my lifetime. What we are seeing with this vaccine rollout is chaos, confusion, frustration, lack of clarity, because there's still no plan. The governor is not happy with the new COVID rescue bill. Florida will receive more than $17 billion, but DeSantis says that's about $2 billion less than it should be. They are penalizing states like Florida who have performed better economically during the pandemic, and they are rewarding the lockdown states who've made a lot of terrible decisions. DeSantis wants to use $2 billion from the feds to bail out the state's unemployment trust fund and protect businesses from a tax increase. Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz is trying to find some way to stop that. Unfortunately, the reflexive response of Republicans is always to help business and screw the little guy. And I'm just so tired of it. And so I'm making sure that uh, that that This is a permissible, allowable use of those funds. State lawmakers are debating a bill today to limit the power of local officials to issue emergency orders, as so many of them did during the pandemic. They'll also talk about a bill to limit the amount of THC in medical marijuana. It is an outdated philosophy that harkens back to the early 20th century uh, when uh, parents were worried that jazz singers would come to town and take advantage of their daughters. It is not based in reality. It is not based in science. We'll also have your daily calendar of political events and the story of a Florida man who was so distraught after his girlfriend dumped him that he burned her possessions. If only he hadn't been in a hotel at the time. But first, a word from the sponsors. You're listening to the Sunrise Podcast from Florida Politics, and we are much obliged. This public health crisis has shown our one-size-fits-all education system does not meet the needs of every child. Senate Bill 48 rethinks education and provides needed flexibility for students and families, giving students the tools and resources they need to unleash their potential. You can make a difference and improve our education system by visiting fledreform.com to tell your lawmaker to support SB 48. Paid for by Americans Prosperity, Florida. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Tuesday, March 9th. This is National Barbie Day, National Get Over It Day, and National Meatball Day. On this date in 1945, more than 300 B-29 superfortresses attacked Tokyo with firebombs. The official death toll was 80,000. That's more than the atomic bombings of Hiroshima or Nagasaki. In 1964, the Supreme Court issued the decision known as New York Times versus Sullivan, which said public officials who sue for libel must prove actual malice to recover damages. That's a pretty tough standard to meet. And one year ago today, Italy locked down their entire country due to a spike in COVID with 10,000 cases and 630 deaths. We had no idea what was to come. 
Florida's Department of Health Monday reported 3,312 new cases of COVID-19. That is the lowest daily total since Halloween. The state also announced 83 new fatalities. It's the third day in a row that number was below 100. Our death toll, however, has reached 32,349. Governor Ron DeSantis will be lowering the age limit for people who want to be vaccinated. The current policy, known as Seniors First, says anyone 65 and older is eligible for a shot. Next week, the age drops to 60. Next Monday, we will be lowering the age in the state of Florida to 60 plus for, for vaccinations. And that will apply uh, across the board at all of the state pods, all of the pharmacies, uh, all of the different drive through sites uh, that are being operated. So again, one week from today, if you're 60 plus, you will be able to get sign up and, and be able to get the vaccine. This is the right time to do it. We're starting to see the demand soften. We anticipate hundreds of thousands of more seniors this week will get it. And of course, starting Monday, seniors are still obviously going to be able to do it. We're going to continue doing senior pods. We're going to continue to, to be doing the rural program. We're going to continue to be doing the, the churches and all the other things that we're doing. Uh, but that 60 to 64, who I know a lot of people have been waiting, uh, we'll open it up. As the governor was making that announcement at the state capitol, Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed was holding a press conference outside a vaccination site at Florida A&M, accusing DeSantis of turning the vaccination process into a modern-day version of the Hunger Games. What we are seeing with this vaccine rollout is chaos, confusion, frustration, lack of clarity, because there's still no plan. Not only now is it unclear who qualifies, it's unclear of what is needed. Some sites require a form, some don't. Some vaccines are vac some areas are vaccinating all of the teachers. Some aren't. Um, some doctors are even charging $350 in order to be uh, giving them that that precious letter uh, for for qualifying somebody. And if you have a doctor, it is part of the problem that we've got almost three million Floridians that don't have a primary care physician because they can't afford health insurance or going to a doctor. And so what has happened now is that what we have seen in the state of Florida dealing with these vaccines is that of the vaccines already in arms, 51% are in the white population, whereas only six, less than 6% in the black communities and almost 11% in the Hispanic communities. In all intents and purposes, Ron DeSantis is playing a hunger game with these vaccines to our Floridians in their lives are at stake. So what I'm asking of Governor DeSantis is to expand working with our healthcare officials and to widen the opportunities to provide actual eligibility. Let an individual come up and show you their prescription. Let them show you a doctor's note or let them show you different types of forms of medical history or other types of medical bills. That way, more and more people can actually have access to these vaccines and prove that they're medically vulnerable and not have to get uh, a note from their doctor. Right now, Florida is the only state, only state that does not have a COVID plan. We do not know who's next on the lists. We don't know where they're going to be uh, different distri distributed. And right now, this is the only state that is playing politics uh, with these vaccines and not allowing science to be utilized for the vaccination of our communities. Freed has asked the FBI to investigate, and she's not the only Democrat who has a problem with the governor's vaccination program. Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz of Broward has a long list of complaints. The vaccine rollout under Governor DeSantis has been marked by favoritism, frustration, and confusion. There has been little to no transparency from the state, 
and the coordination is so lax, it's not clear Florida really knows where vaccines are going. For instance, Publix is deciding without any direction from the state of Florida how vaccines are distributed, and state officials didn't even know where they would end up for sure, according to the Miami Herald. From the beginning of this pandemic, DeSantis played down the threats, cooked the COVID books to make it all look rosier, and retaliated against anyone who dared to question his methods. In recent weeks, we found out that DeSantis had set up invite-only vaccine clinics in upscale communities, allowing them to jump ahead of thousands of others. And now it's being reported that a donor connected to the invite-only vaccine clinics dumped tens of thousands of dollars into the governor's campaign coffers. Again, when he's been questioned about this, his first, his first instinct has been to retaliate and say, you got a, rep- a problem with that? We'll pull the clinic and put it elsewhere. Over the weekend, his denial of state involvement in these invite-only events was contradicted by hospitals and county officials. So with DeSantis, the reflexive response is retaliation or misrepresentation, or just flat out lying. And this is no way to earn people's confidence and trust amid a pandemic. We already have vaccine hesitancy in many communities, and we need to make sure that we are being transparent and equitable and efficient and well-coordinated and responsive. And DeSantis's behavior is the kind of reckless behavior that costs lives. St. Petersburg Congressman and former Governor Charlie Crist says DeSantis's basic problem is a lack of transparency, a lack of clarity, and the lack of a coherent vaccination plan. We take no pleasure in Governor DeSantis' handling of this pandemic. But the fact of the matter is that we are past the one-year mark of this virus in our country and Florida and still have no concrete vaccination plan for the Sunshine State. For months, we knew the vaccine distribution was coming and that our state would need a plan in place that would target distribution that would then ramp up to mass vaccination as supplies increased. At the very least, we needed clear, transparent communication between the governor's office, local hospitals, county officials. And yet what we've got was the complete opposite, the least transparent administration of my lifetime political pop-up sites in wealthy gated communities so the governor's friends and donors could jump the line in front of every other senior. And still no plan, no guidance, seniors waiting out in the cold or heat, leaving it up to individual doctors to determine high-risk status. Uh, Give me a break. This just doesn't make sense. Seniors are still struggling to get online to get someone on the phone or who can help them get a vaccine appointment. It's total leadership failure. You shouldn't need to know somebody to get an appointment. We saw this with the unemployment situation, and now we're seeing it with our vaccines. Governor DeSantis is shooting from the hip with the health and well-being of Floridians literally on the line. No leadership, no responsibility. When you muzzle your Surgeon General, you arrest your scientist who is trying to report the truth. Something's terribly wrong. And it didn't have to be this way. Thanks to the investigative reporting across the state, including many of you, Floridians are beginning to learn the truth. The governor's friends, allies, and donors get to skip the line. Meanwhile, who is looking out for the hardest hit communities in our state, especially black and Latino seniors? It is literally unconscionable. Hospitals and county health departments with no clue of what Tallahassee is doing and how to distribute these doses. Publix is doing a better job coordinating vaccines than our own state government. And CVS and Walmart, thank God, are ignoring the governor's latest confusing directive and just following the Biden administration's call to vaccinate all teachers. 
what better way to keep schools open and safe than protecting our teachers? The DeSantis plan or lack thereof stands in stark contrast with what President Biden has been doing since day one. This is a plan that meets the crisis we're in and finally gives Floridians the leadership they have been lacking and frankly deserve. Congressman Darren Soto, whose district includes Osceola and Orange counties, says the federal vaccination centers are putting the state operations to shame. I spent an hour and a half Sunday at the FEMA vaccination site to wait online with my wife, Amanda, who's an educator. And it was very efficiently run. So it's not the federal sites. It's the confusion we see in the state sites where many educators didn't know whether they were eligible or not. Many were turned away. We need clear and consistent eligibility requirements like we see on the federal level, on the state level as well. If we're going to continue to reopen our schools safely, all educators need to be vaccinated. We also need the resources for extra efforts for hard to reach populations like our Hispanic community and African-American and rural communities throughout my district. Many of those communities lack access to adequate internet. Many of them have waited for hours on the phone to try to register. And so these walk-up sites like the FEMA vaccination site where you don't need an appointment, it's key to level the playing field along with additional transportation assistance for those who are immobile. The American Rescue Act will supercharge these efforts at a scale and with the resources that we need to get most Floridians vaccinated before the end of this year. In Central Florida, we're still dealing with high unemployment as well, hovering at 7% in Orange County and over 8% in Osceola County. Central Florida families need unemployment, food, housing, and small business assistance. And we need it extended until our industries can recover later this year so that no family goes hungry, so that no family is kicked out in the streets. Stimulus checks, child tax credits, and earned income tax credits will help particularly our families with young children who need our help the most. We will continue to work to help Florida's working families through the pandemic and into the end of this economic crisis. That's what the American Rescue Act is all about. The U.S. House will take a final vote later this week on that $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. Florida's share adds up to more than $17 billion, but Governor DeSantis believes we are being shortchanged. They are penalizing states like Florida who have performed better economically during the pandemic, and they are rewarding the lockdown states who've made a lot of terrible decisions, hurt a lot of people. They are rewarding them for having higher unemployed populations. And so the way this current bill is structured, Florida will end up with approximately $2 billion less in aid under the unemployment methodology than we would be provided if Congress used the same per capita distribution of funds that was used in the CARES Act. California ends up with more than $6 billion extra in aid than if it was done on a per capita basis. New York gets more than $2 billion extra in the stimulus than if it was done on a per capita basis. Illinois and New Jersey each get more than $1 billion in additional funds. And all those states have something in common. They're all deep blue states under Democrat control and they're lockdown states. And they've caused a lot of damage with their policies and now they're getting bailed out under this bill. So to take money from Florida, to send it to California, Illinois, New York, New Jersey, I think is just fundamentally unfair. 
Imagine getting a $17 billion windfall and then complaining it's not enough. And consider how they want to use it. The governor and the Senate president have suggested dumping $2 billion of those federal dollars into the state unemployment compensation fund. That way businesses will not have to face an increase in their unemployment taxes. Congresswoman Wasserman Schultz says that is not what they had in mind with the bill. She's asking her staff to see if it's legal for the state to use the COVID money to give business a tax break. The purpose of those funds is to make sure that we are doing things like helping states and local governments not lay off first responders, making sure that while, yes, they can replace general revenue that has been lost as a result of the downturn in the economy, it it wasn't to let them swoop in and help businesses where we are already one of the the worst states in the country for unemployment benefits, for the length of time that we provide benefits, we, we shouldn't be giving businesses a windfall. What we should be doing is making sure that we use those funds to increase the weekly amount for unemployment benefits, lengthen the, not, the, the amount of time past 12 weeks when they can go up to 26. I mean, the, unfortunately, the reflexive response of Republicans is always to help business and screw the little guy. And I'm just so tired of it. And so I'm making sure that, uh, that, that this is a permissible, allowable use of those funds and, uh, and, and just going to be underscoring to, to make sure that, uh, that it's people that are, that are hurting here and, uh, and that we make sure that we can take care of them. The governor has also suggested that some of the new federal stimulus money could be used to pay for his billion-dollar resiliency proposal to help the state and local governments combat the effects of climate change and sea level rise. The House Pandemics and Public Emergencies Committee will vote today on a bill by Representative Bob Rommel of Naples that would restrict the emergency powers of local governments. The measure limits the duration of these local emergency orders, which means that that would give the governor even more power during a pandemic. Governor DeSantis supports the idea, especially when it comes to business closings. He does not want the locals to have that sort of authority. The fact is, that's an awesome power to be able to just uh, essentially concede to a local government that someone can't even earn. And if you look at you look at South Florida, they would have kept a lot more of this closed if I had not come in and said, everyone has a right to work. Every business has a right to operate. I mean, you look at some of those places are booming right now uh, because I effectively came over the top rope and said, enough of this, we've got to put people back to work. But I just worry going forward, when, when would some of this end? You look around the country, you've had places that have effectively been shut down for a year. You look at some of the places in California, they've been shut down for a year. So how is somebody going to be able to make make an income, earn a living on some of that? And I think there does need to be reform. If you have an emergency that is not for a finite period of time and that can kind of just drag on, and then with some of these governments throughout the country, and not necessarily in Florida, but some of the local governments, they would put these totally unrealistic guidelines down of like you have to meet certain number of cases per 100,000, which are really not even attainable. So I think that there needs to be protection for folks and you shouldn't have your entire livelihood just upended because of, of one emergency dictate by somebody in a, a mayor or, or a local government. But State Representative Fentries Driscoll of Tampa believes limiting local governments would be a major blunder. Think back a year ago. Driscoll says it was the cities and counties that led the way, responding to COVID, while the state had to be dragged into the fight as DeSantis followed the lead of Donald Trump. 
during the pandemic, we were all trying to figure out, you know, which way was up, which way was down and, and trying to feel our way through it. But it was really our mayors and our county commissions who sprang into action when we weren't having the type of well-defined response from the state government. And I'm confident that it was because of the leadership of our local and county governments that we were able to start to curtail the spread. And any success that we've had with respect to the COVID-19 response in Florida is largely due to them. And I mean, look, you know, speaking of this trend of eroding home rule, I think it's very problematic. I also think it's very problematic, um, this trend of consolidating more power within the hands of the executive. You know, in um, an American government, you know, we have the three branches of government for a reason. We have that similar sort of a structure here in the state of Florida. And I think it's important to be mindful of the guardrails that are put in place, because, yes, you know, today there may be one party in charge. Tomorrow it may be a, dif a different one. Those guardrails should not uh, be eroded just because of partisan politics. And for that reason, I'm not, you know, I'm strongly opposed to any sort of uh, bill that would impede our local governments from doing what they have been doing in terms of keeping us safe and keeping our economy moving. Representative Driscoll is also worried Rommel's bill would allow the governor to wipe out local mask mandates. It's time for the governor to stop politicizing the usage of face masks. It's time for us to move past that issue. We're over a year into this pandemic. The science is very clear. CDC guidance and guidelines are very clear that masks help stop the spread. I want to see us remain open for business and attract more business here. But part of our ability to do that has to be us demonstrating that we can keep COVID-19 under control. And the usage of face masks goes a long way in our ability to do that. So it's time to stop politicizing this issue. It's time to stop playing with people's lives. The House Pandemics and Public Emergencies Committee meets at 345 this afternoon to vote on Representative Rommel's bill. State lawmakers are debating a bill today that would increase the cost of medical marijuana. Representative Spencer Roach of North Fort Myers wants to limit the amount of THC in medicinal weed to just 10 percent. That's compared to the 30 percent you can find at dispensaries. It's even higher for concentrates. Limiting the THC content means you have to buy a lot more of the stuff to get the same dose. And if that makes no sense to you, Representative Evan Jenny of Dania Beach says there is a reason. He believes this bill is designed to undermine the basic idea that marijuana can be medicine. If you cut the potency by half, people are probably just going to double the amount that they take. It is, in my opinion, a very bad uh, idea, uh, but I think the intent is not to have this be a good idea where more people are getting the medicine that they need. I think the idea is to drive down sales as much as possible. Uh, there is a significant contingent, including a lot of members of leadership, not in our caucus, but in the House as a whole, uh, that has been dead set against medicinal cannabis, uh, and, and especially dead set against recreational cannabis. Um, this is an outcropping of that particular philosophy. Uh, it is an outdated philosophy that goes back, harkens back to the early 20th century uh, when uh, parents were worried that jazz singers would come to town and take advantage of their daughters. Um, it is not based in reality. It is not based in science. Uh, it is simply a way uh, to make it more difficult to be to um, receive the medicine that they and more importantly their physicians feel that they need um, so this is taking away choice from floridians uh, i have heard throughout the years over and over again that we uh you know believe we are a state of personal responsibility and freedoms uh, this infringes directly on 
those claims. So our caucus has kind of moved into the 21st century. And unfortunately, there are folks with a lot of clout in this building uh, whose mind harkens back uh, to the 1930s and 1940s. The House Professions and Public Health Subcommittee will take up the medical marijuana THC cap at 930. We'll have the rest of your calendar and the mandatory Florida man story in just a moment. But first, let's pay the bills. In Florida, if you fall behind on court debt payments, the state takes away your driver's license. But if you can't drive, you can't work. So how can you make enough money to pay the debt? This policy makes no sense. Let's end debt-based license suspensions and help Florida get back to work. Welcome back to the Sunrise Calendar. The governor and cabinet meet at 9 in the state capitol. Should be fun to watch Ron DeSantis and Nikki Freed square off face-to-face. The Senate Ethics and Elections Committee meets at 9 to consider a proposal that requires the approval of two-thirds of the voters for a constitutional amendment to pass. Currently, it takes 60 percent. This is the latest in a series of moves by the GOP to try to stop people from changing the Constitution. At 11.45, the Senate Judiciary Committee takes up a bill changing the property insurance system by limiting payouts for roof damage. The sponsor of the bill, Senator Jim Boyd, is an insurance broker. At 1, the House Criminal Justice and Public Safety Committee will take up a bill that targets corporate espionage. Senator Lori Berman and Representative Robin Bartleman are holding an online news conference at 1.30 to talk about their bills that would help protect the anonymity of victims of sexual violence or sexual exploitation. At 3.30, the Senate Criminal Justice Committee takes up a bill allowing more people with concealed weapons licenses to bring guns on property owned, rented, or used by religious institutions. The Senate Education Committee meets at 3.30 to consider Senator Dennis Baxley's bill changing the Bright Futures Scholarship Program. It cuts funding for students who choose to pursue a major they really want instead of a major that will lead to a high-paying job. Nothing quite like the state telling you what degree you should pursue and punishing you financially if you don't. At 3.45, the House Commerce Committee votes on a bill to reduce the authority of local governments to place design restrictions on new homes. And a ceremony is being held at 6.15 to light up the old Capitol in purple to raise awareness of Alzheimer's disease. Finally today, a Florida man faces a possible life sentence after being charged with setting a fire inside a hotel room in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Firefighters found 57-year-old John Cagle of Orlando passed out outside his room at the Wingate Hotel. He told them he was upset because his girlfriend dumped him, so he gathered her stuff and set it on fire. Damages are estimated at $10,000. Now, Cagle is charged with first-degree arson in Kentucky. That is a Class A felony that could mean life in prison with no chance of parole for at least 20 years. That's it for today's installment of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we continue to plumb the depths of Florida politics. 